Well, Nick, we're back with another episode, another director. Little check-in. How you doing? I'm all right. You know, I, I, I am just, uh, you know, hanging out on my little island in uh, New York. You know, what about you? I had one of those days. You ever been at work where you're just eating to stay awake? Yeah. Yeah, I've been there for sure. Sometimes I don't stay awake. I take naps. Work from home is great. Yeah, I, I'm not there yet. But that was my day today. But it's good. I have a wonderful new beer I'm trying. A Two Brothers Domain DuPage. That sound made up. I don't know. Not made up? No, Two Brothers is an Illinois brewing company. Oh, no. Um, I didn't hear you say Two Brothers. I, I heard the rest of it. Ah, yeah. No, no. I'm trying a new Two Brothers beer. Pretty good. Nice. That's exciting. You know what's more exciting than Two Brothers? Uh, nope. <laughs> what? 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 What do you got? It's like a what, TD? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. That's uh, that's what the show's on. <laughs> that's good. Uh, th- this is gonna be a fast and loose episode, dear I listener. Can't, I can't, You're gonna love I this. I can't imagine it's gonna be very organized. Uh, this is also one where you, right. you've, you're definitely a lot more knowledgeable than me, but I'll throw in what I, what I can. Mm-hmm. This is, a, this is what we no, call the it. Is, the business. I, I we really call this a Zach-heavy episode, you know? This is... Yeah. This is me going to be asking well, I, Zach a lot, of, a lot of very basic questions. Well, Taika Waititi hits on a couple things that I pay attention to in mainstream popular culture that you do not. So I think that's one of the reasons why I have a little bit more affinity for him. Um, but he is a great filmmaker, um, and I'm, I'm super excited to talk about him. Oh, I'll clarify this. I love Watiti. I, I do. I, I, think, I think he's a- absolutely excellent. I'm just not like a, a, a hardcore fanboy. I just think he's very, very good. Let me ask you this. When did you become aware of him? Because I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about his career. It's like hit a couple different like pop culture touchstones. And like I feel like people like either jump on at one point or another. Where were you? Well, look, I guess the so it's interesting because like I didn't know him as like a, a comedian or brand or anything like that but like the first thing i saw of him was eagle versus shark when it came out um and like i know because like pat was a big fan of flight of the concords and do you produce that in some way or am i just making that up because they're both from new zealand uh, no 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 you're not making it up i i can kind of Touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, way way back machine. I didn't know who he was, but like I started watching his, his, you know, his work relatively early. Um, Then I became aware of him as a filmmaker when I was hearing really good things about Hunt for the Wilder People when it came out. Um, So you know, I I heard the critic side and all that, but I would say the first thing I watched that I was like, yeah, was Jojo Rabbit, which is the most recent thing he's made. So like, it's. I'm kind of in a I'm a weird person to ask about him in that sense because I've been vaguely aware of him for quite a while I I think that's super interesting so I just to give some context I was someone who was like I was aware of his projects but not aware of him yeah and then it was probably right around 
the time that Thor Ragnarok came out that I also saw Hunt for the Wilda People and What We Do in the Shadows and was figuring out like, oh, this is all the same crazy, delusional, wonderful mind um, and started digging into him. Yeah, I mean that makes so so it sort of hit you like a, like a, with a ton of bricks at once, or well, you know, I guess a good thing that isn't bricks, like a ton of puppies. It hit you like a ton of puppies. Yeah, I feel like there was that wave like somewhere between like the 2014 2016 where he was really big in the indie circuit. Yeah, and I had heard like Hunt for the Wilder People and What We Do in the Shadows, but I wasn't like re- I, I didn't watch, and then I saw Thor Ragnarok and was like. This was really good. I think Hunt for the Wilder People was on the list that year, and I liked it. Uh, my girlfriend showed me What We Do in the Shadows that same year. It was just kind of like a confluence of Thor Ragnarok kicking it off. That makes sense, too. You know, Marvel opens but, doors. But that's, Disney opens doors, whatever the fuck. I don't know. We, we talk about Disney way too much on this fucking show. Well, they own everything now. All right, so uh, let's get in the way, way back machine. Let's just kick this off. Um, so... He was born August 16th, 1975 in Court, New Zealand. I don't know how you say that. Uh, uh. Core. I don't know. Anyway, okay. so New Zealand. Uh, he was actually born Taika David Cohen, and he has adopted professionally the surname Waititi, uh, which I love. Um, but while he was in college... He actually toured New Zealand in a comedy troupe. Uh, I forget what they were called, but the comedy troupe consisted of him, the two guys from Flight of the Concords, and two people that don't have Wikipedia links. Uh, but from there, he spun off and formed a duo with Jermaine Clement called the Humor Beasts. And so that kind of solidified their relationship. Um, he started making some short films in basically like a 48-hour film competition thing. Because he did study film in college, uh, and then uh, famously, like, kind of first jumped to prominence outside of New Zealand. He made a short film called Two Cars One Night," and it was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, that's the famous clip you see of him doing the best bit ever, where he pretends he's asleep when they're calling his category. Oh. Real gangster move to do at the Academy Awards. I love it, especially if you're nominated for a short film. Yeah, I know, right? So wait, hold on. I need to. We need to backtrack on something here. Uh, so first off, like, are the three people I know from the country of New Zealand all all friends? Yes. And then they two, all went to college they together. Two, they all had, they had two other friends who I I don't know for some reason. What do those guys do? Like, <laughs> I don't on, know. I bring all your I, friends here. <laughs> literally. Like, I looked at them, and it was like, uh, what is it? Brett Wright, Jermaine Clement, and then, the, like, one of them sent an actor named Blank and Blank. And I no links for those guys. I was like, oh, that sucks. That's sad. I'm sure they are doing fine. Uh, I, you don't know that. You don't know that. I, I don't. They could be dead. I'm, I'm <laughs> wishing them the best. They could be, they could be heroin addicts. They, they could be in jail. I don't imagine New Zealand having a heroin problem. I don't know. It just seems such an idyllic place. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it takes a while to go there, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the tricky part. I'd go there. I just don't have the time. I, I want to go so badly. Uh, one day I'll get there. I don't know. 
Where but, do you rank it on places you'd like to travel to as a, as a list? Honestly, man, New Zealand's kind of up there at the top. I, for a brief period, looked into, like, how, how does one just move to New Zealand? It's incredibly difficult because guess what? When did what? you they... look up moving to New Zealand in a, in a realistic way? When did that happen? When in your life? Like it, during the pandemic when, we, oh, uh, when okay. I was thinking about moving and getting out of New York and we were trying to figure out places to go, I was like, you know, if I move to a foreign country, New Zealand seems pretty fucking rad. And, and yeah, they, guess what? They don't want us there. <laughs> No, most foreign it's countries very hard to get in. To, to be to be yeah. fair, I, 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 to be honest, I wouldn't I wouldn't want us either. I have no discernible <laughs> skill set. I'm of no use to any nation. Uh, other than this one, eh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> anyway, we should get back to Watini. I'm distracting because it's been a long work day, and I'm just bullshitting. Uh, same here. Uh, well, let's talk. So, anyway, he's worked with. On, like, the Flight of the Concord show, as well as having, like, this very deep history with uh, Brett and Germain. I was never a Flight of the Concords guy myself. I have tried to get into it since I learned of Watiti, and I'm still kind of eh on it. I liked and it. Cer- certainly not well-versed enough. I've only seen, like, the occasional episode here and there, had the occasional music video song here and there. Like, I, I cannot call myself a fan just because of the limited exposure I have. Uh, I would say I am a fan. Uh, I, I'd say it's like a loose fandom. Like, I'm not like a hardcore Flight of the Concords fan, but like, I'd say I've seen the whole first season. I think I've seen, I want to say I watched the second season too. I can't, to- I couldn't tell you the the episodes or what happens in them or anything. It's been, it's been a while. I watched it the first season when I came out and I think I watched the second season in college. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, I, I mean, I really, I enjoy, there's sort of a, a, a dry but offbeat sense of humor that the show has, and I think, I think it works quite well. I, I always really enjoyed it. Pat got me into it. Pat was a big fan of it. That sounds right. Um, I, I know he, he's like written and directed at least an episode or two. Um, I want to say maybe he pops in as a cast member once or twice um but anyway so all of this leads him to doing 2007's eagle versus shark which is his first feature-length film um and it was actually released in the u.s for the dist- for like actual movie distribution in 2007 i don't know if it came out in new zealand like a little bit earlier with the time and sometimes how things will be delayed coming out in america but yeah eagle versus shark nick yeah. tell me about yeah, this yeah. uh screwball comedy well, that's one way of putting it. Have you seen this? No. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> screw, screwball's a, a... I don't know if it's the right word, to be honest. Uh, I, so, okay. Yeah, well, screwball all, was I'll, the I'll, wrong word. Screwball brings to mind <laughs> 80s comedies. This is yeah. not that. This is like a, a, no. a quirky rom-com. Right? This is sort of... So, okay. Eagle versus Shark. And I ended up... I did brush up on this movie a little bit because I watched... I, this was... a. Uh, Oh, thing I've mentioned uh, a lot, and we, I, we should honestly maybe turn this into a category or something. This is a movie I randomly watched when I worked at Blockbuster. Um, I had five free rentals a week, everybody. Uh, you're going to watch a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm really good at the 2007-2008 year range. Um, but 
No, this movie, I watched it, and I remember I watched it because I saw it was the dude from Flight of the Concords, and I had just, Pat had just told me about uh, the Flight of the Concords of the show, and I'd watched some episodes with him and stuff, and I was like, I, I, I was like, this is pretty funny, and then I saw Jermaine Clement on the cover, and I was like, oh, it's the Flight of the Concords guy trying to do a movie, that's fun. Um, I don't know, another thing I want to mention when it comes to this movie from a historical standpoint, was this was a movie that was produced by the government of New Zealand. Yeah, like the, they the, do a the, lot of that, though. I mean, sure, but that was something that I I remember looking up at the looking up at the time and being very fascinated by. Like, oh, oh the, yeah, other governments pay you to make movies. Why do I wish our government would pay me? Uh, no, no, but no yeah. They, Another but reason they, I looked at moving to New Zealand. <laughs> okay, see that makes sense. They don't um, want me. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, this movie. So from a, a I guess a plot standpoint, it's Jermaine uh, uh, Clement is uh, kind of a he's a nerdy, selfish prick um, who frequents a fast food restaurant uh, that this woman works in. They're both kind of quirky, and he invites her attractive coworker to a party at his house. Uh, but she doesn't come, so uh, the quirky girl just shows up anyway. She comes dressed as a, as a shark. He's dressed as an eagle. That's why the movie's called Eagle vs. Shark. And uh, they play video games with a bunch of children, and then they fuck. And then they decide they're dating, and they drive to his hometown where he is going to fight his bully from high school and his plan is to fight the bully from high school and kill him. And they, she gets to meet his quirky family. And so that's, that's the basic premise. It's what I would say. So the thing for about this movie is like, we're, we're getting into what and like, I think that at least based on what I've seen, this is the clearest example of what TD doing something that doesn't work. And I can't stress enough. This movie is not good. I, I don't. I did not like this at all. There's an audience for it. Um, I imagine the audience very much shares the same bubble of the Venn diagram with people that thought Napoleon Dynamite was funny. It's oh. very similar style of humor. Oh. It's like, it is, it, I would say this is Flight of the Concords meets Napoleon Dynamite, is what this movie is. Um, That's rough. I, I and, honestly did not expect that at all. Okay. And I need to, fa- I need to throw in this additional factor that I sort of uh, said, but I, I want to, I want to stress here. Part of the biggest issue I took from the movie, even with the time, was Jermaine Clement's character is a fucking asshole. And it's like, not only are you like an offbeat nerd, but you treat this other offbeat nerd that you should be sort of endeared with. He just treats her like shit the whole fucking movie and gets nothing like the, uh, like his character arc is him eventually being nice to her. And that's not much of an arc as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> personally. No, I get you. So, I, uh, no, this movie's not good. Bummer. That was one that I was like, depending on what you said, I was going to go back and watch it, but maybe not. No, no. I mean, and the, like, that's the thing is like, it's, you know, it, it's that sort of humor where it's awkward for the sake of awkward is automatically funny. 
um, which yeah. was a which was a trend at the time. I'm glad that trend is mostly dead. Um, I hated that trend, uh, and yeah, this this was this was a prime example of it for sure. And it's just like there's I think there's a lot of humor and charm in the awkwardness within Flight of the Concords, and that's because you've got likable people and you've got uh, you know some fun music and stuff like that and. This doesn't. This doesn't have any of those things. So it it just ends up being uncomfortable. Hell, his character's got a. His character like they they introduce it. Uh, Jermaine Clement's character as a son, and they just throw it out there like you know halfway through the movie, and they're just like oh yeah by the way he's got like a ten year old kid that he just neglects and you know, <laughs> you know how it is sometimes you have a one night stand and you leave the kid with your parents, and and move somewhere else so you can work at a video game store or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, dude, I don't like you. Rough. It's interesting you say that because his next film also deals with the absentee father relationship, I guess you could say. You know, I, I mean, I, I would guess based on what I've seen in his filmography that I think that's a factor for him as a storyteller. Oh, I mean, yeah, it seems like it. Uh, a lot of the stuff has to do with that. At least four of the six. And some others I'm thinking of. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. You want to talk boy? That's his next one. That's kind of the yeah, one Yeah, what's I, up? What's up, boy? Boy pretty much like puts him on the international map. Um, it, it opened at Sundance. Uh, it was nominated for, I think, the Grand Jury Prize. Um, it, it was, I think at the time, I'm trying to think of the, the phrasing for this out of a New Zealand film, it made the most money at the New Zealand box office. Huh? Um, yeah, people fucking love this movie and it's on its base level. It's basically about a boy who's obsessed with Michael Jackson trying to have a relationship with his absentee father. I, I, I find this to be a very challenging film because I think it's trying to be a coming-of-age story, but it's not totally committing to the tropes of a coming-of-age story and hitting all of those story beats. It's trying to be like a connecting with your absentee father kind of story, but it's also not hitting those all the beats necessary for that. So really it ends up being just kind of a odd slice of life picture about a kid finding out what his parents are actually like. Someone who like idolizes their dad finding out that, Oh, he's kind of just a loser. You know, that, that moment where you realize your perception of your parents is wrong and they are not godlike figures. Well, that's a, That's an interesting, like, thing for movies to tackle because I don't think they tackle it enough personally. Well, and maybe that's just because it's very hard. Like, um, Oh, I'm so in sure. This, in this, Taika Waititi is playing the bum dad, and I think that's one of the things that, like, it helps the movie because Taika Waititi is very charming and he is able to mine little bits of comedy that I don't think maybe another actor could but also, like, he's stretching himself, like, trying to play this... Like, his dad is an ex-con who robs banks or stores or whatever, um, has done some time in prison. 
like really just wants to be in a biker gang and run a biker gang and it's just like you know it's not taika waititi like he's this bubbly kind of nerdy guy who's just sounds polite no matter what he's saying so there's a, a little bit of his strengths are working against him in that sense that so I mean that sounds like a, a an interesting catch twenty two because like you want the character to have an inherent likability that you know in order to carry the movie which Watiti brings but also I feel like that would make the the impact of it less effective if you yeah. like the character that much you know you know what I mean I do and also it's still kind of hard like I mentioned it's a slice of life but it's still like you have a father at the center of the story who doesn't want to be a father like the family i mean it's not just one kid he's got like brothers and sisters viewing it as you know from my chicago apartment it looks like they're living in poverty like multiple people in a room the kids are generally running wild a lot of hand-me-downs it's it's not like abject poverty but like you know it is not great living situations and, you know, his dad, Taika Waititi, like, has a hair trigger that they play for comedy at times. And again, I think that's one of those things where, like, he's likable and can find bits of comedy in things that other people can't. But also, there are times where it's it's weird that they're playing it for a joke because you look around and it's like, oh, yeah, things are still very bad. Right. Um, yeah. I, and so, throughout sounds, the whole that thing... That sounds like it has tonal issues, for sure. It absolutely does. And on top of all of that that I've just talked about, which you could view as like kind of an interesting little drama, coming-of-age movie, whatever you like, there is the Michael Jackson motif thrown on top of it where they couldn't really get Michael Jackson music because it's fucking expensive, and this was like an indie New Zealand movie. But they're doing like homages to Michael Jackson as if like the kid sees his father as michael jackson so there are times where like there's a whole scene where taika watiti does billy jean there's the ends with like a giant cast number doing the thriller music video dance so i i hate Wait, to say they, this but, but they, like, use the, they use the songs generally not like uh, nick did so you ever see blinded do? by the what light they, what do they what do they do the kid just talks about Michael Jackson a lot and like, you know, he you want to see some Michael Jackson dance moves. He wants to get his hair cut like Michael Jackson and like he never sure. actually does good things like that. And then there are these motifs where like he's looking at his dad at a party from across the room and his dad goes into like a dream montage where he's doing like the Billie Jean dance with the suit and the light up squares and stuff. So it's like direct homages, but it's without the Michael Jackson music. And they're supplanting it like, you know, Watiti is a very strong auditory filmmaker when it comes to putting his soundtrack together and there are certainly much cheaper but catchy songs from the time that they are putting in there to give you that atmosphere but it just never works and i kept thinking of blinded by the light which is the movie that came out about um springsteen which yeah i'm not a big springsteen fan but i was like this really works because not only is it, are the songs such an integral part of the plot and this main and the lead character's actual character? You've got all of his great music to help 
bring you into the world, bring you into his struggles and stuff. And they tie it in, I think, really well. And I honestly feel like this movie does suffer from the fact that they just couldn't get the music. If this was peppered with Michael Jackson songs, it would be a totally different movie than it is. But I think that would be a huge leg up. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I imagine that the... Um, that that would be a hindrance to the movie. Like I feel like that would kind of be distracting. It almost is. And that's the problem. Like If it was a full auditory motif as well as a visual motif, I think it would have made a lot more sense and maybe would have helped smooth out some of the other edges that I had problems with. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I understand being a certain level of bootstrapped with it, especially... You know, and that's the thing. You give the man credit because, you know, he all, Eagle vs. Shark, as much as I dislike it as a movie, it did. It got into Sundance, right? So, like, you know, the, the, like he had had a very successful career with his first two movies in terms of, like, you know, filmmakers saw the potential in, in this dude, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so whether it works or whether it works or not, um, you know, it, I, I think the ingredients are, are there for, for success down the line. Absolutely. And one big important one is the fact that like all of the stuff that I've been saying kind of alludes to the fact that especially with the relationship with his dad, with the quality of life that they're in, like there is a, it's like just off screen, there is a much sadder tone bubbling and Waititi just always keeps it out of focus. And I think that serves him particularly in his most recent film. I think that's the one-to-one comparison that you have to make with boy. Okay. Well, honestly, Um, like, you know, you've intrigued me on boy enough where like, even if like, well, uh, here, let me ask you this. Did you like the movie? I I can't say that I did. Like it is just a challenging watch because you have to figure out what the tone is. And because it's a little loosey-goosey with what it is, like, I, I feel like you can never really get a grasp on, you know, am I watching a What We Do in the Shadows or Hunt for the Wilder People-style comedy? Am I watching more of a Jojo Rabbit, like, those hard moments of drama? What am I supposed to be tuning into? So I'm yeah. going to say no. I say, like, if it's free on a streaming service, absolutely check it out because it is certainly a... Uh, it's him figuring out some things he's going to explore a lot more. You've done a, de- a decent job of sort of selling this in the sense that, like, it, it, it could be worth a watch even if you don't like it. Because yeah. I'd be curious I'd be curious to see how he tells that story without the, like, with the, the bootstrapped budget. Like, that I, interests me. Even if it doesn't work, I find it interesting. And the fact that he went for it. No, no, no. He commits real hard. And I think that's one of the things where I I think if I wasn't looking at it so analytically, I might have found it a little bit funnier than it was. But because I was trying to like really dig into the big picture and where this fit into his filmography and, you know, his favorite pet themes and things like that, I, I think I kind of undervalued some of the like true comedy that he gets. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's boy, um, big success kind of gets his name really out there. And then I just want to mention in 2011, because he is also an actor, he is cast in Green Lantern as Ryan Reynolds' best friend, which 
it's ridiculous that that movie exists and that he is in it and no one talks about it, that he's part of the DC universe. But also, like, uh, he I does forgot kind that of... movie existed until just now. Yeah. And, I mean, I can't say that he's good in it because I, I don't really remember anything about that movie, but, like, I, I do think he popped a little bit as the best friend in a thankless role that it got a little bit of Hollywood attention and he started getting a couple more meetings, things like that, and that kind of catapults him along with the you know, huge success of Flight of the Concords into what we do in the shadows, which is 2014. And he so co-directed this one with, with Jermaine, right? Correct. I, I, I don't know if there's a specific reason for it, but they did... So What We Do in the Shadows is based off of one of those short films that the two of them directed together like a decade earlier. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a mockumentary about four New Zealand vampires who all are roommates. And it kind of just like... You know, it's 2014, like, The Office is still on TV, pretty sure. 2014 Office is still on TV, right? Uh, certainly. Yeah, and Parks and Rec, like, the mockumentary style is at least coming back a little bit. I think Christopher Guest, when does he make that oh. terrible Oscar movie? That's around here, right? Well, the, mo I mean, well, the, so... Christopher Guest, if you're looking at Christopher Guest's mockumentary era, that was certainly before this. Um, I mean, the, the last bad one. Yeah. For your consideration was the one where it wasn't a mockumentary style, though. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. That's why it was bad. Well, no, that's not the only reason why it was bad. But, they, I, but part of the thing was is you had a certain thing you've come to expect with the three Christopher Guest mockumentary movies that are good. Uh, and then For Your Consideration sucks, and the one major difference between them, other than good script, is no mockumentary style. They try to do a narrative structure, and it didn't work at all. Um, but anyway, no, I okay. mean, the, the mockumentary style was was definitely big, I would say, with TV in, in this era. Um, and so, yeah, I could see where a studio would green light it, for sure. Yeah, and... Um... Honestly, so Nick, you haven't seen this one, right? What? You have not seen this, right? I haven't watched this one. No, I've seen the, the next three, but I, I'm I this, I'm a not I've I've never seen this. I don't like vampires. Uh not because I find them scary, because I think they're lame. And I I just don't get it. I don't get the vampire thing, and I've sort of swore off vampires. In a non-list setting, when I watched that fucking Jarmusch movie where the vampires didn't do anything, and anytime I watch the trail for this, I'm like, oh, this looks like a funny version of that, and I don't, I don't want to. So here's the thing: I think what we do in the shadows is very important because a, it is like the, it's the first entry point into his career and his brand that I think people have, and I mean this certainly has a cult following, um, but he is also one of the main characters, it, him and Jermaine Clement both act in it in lead roles. They turned this and, into a TV show eventually too, right? Yeah, I'll talk about that. Um, okay. Because here's the thing. I saw the movie, whatever, uh, like a couple years after it came out. I wasn't a huge fan. I honestly, like when it comes to that 
mockumentary TV show style, I'm a little less on it to begin with. So I understand, like, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But I think that what we do in The Shadows as a movie has a, like, the things he does well is there is a deep world building and lore setup that he delivers excellently. It's funny. You buy it. You want to learn more. I just think my big problem with the movie is that, like, it doesn't really get going until you get to the end, and even the end is a little anticlimactic. Like, I, I think it's... I love the show because I think the show is, A, not limited by the time span of the movie so it can tell multiple different stories. It works so much better as an episodic. Um, also, you know, it is him calling in favors from a bunch of his friends. I think that there's a whole subplot with werewolves. I, I think all of that's really boring and gets in the way of what's fun about the movie's premise. So... I, I, I oddly, just, like, I, I can't give this an endorsement, but what I can say is, like, you know, he was one of the producers, writers. I think he directed the pilot. He has made guest appearances on the show. I think he's, like, had a, a nice creative hand in it. I think the show is actually, like, one of the better TV shows running right now. It's really, really funny. It gets every good idea that he has in this and executes it perfectly and builds upon it. What we do in the shadows, I would say, like, honestly, if you like it, you've probably already seen it. If it interests you, check out the show. That's funny, because, like, I, I'm just looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, we're halfway through this filmography, and we haven't endorsed a movie yet, but we both are like, yeah, we're big fans of Watini, and it's just hilarious. Like, it, it, and it, you know, so I guess we're getting to the good shit now, but still, it's just, it's it's funny that we've gotten halfway through the filmography, and we're like, nah, I mean, the ingredients are there, but nah. Well, that, that's the thing with him, is I, I think he's always aiming big, and I don't think you can argue at all with, especially the couple movies we've talked about. The premises are fantastic on paper. I, I think in execution, they're good. I just think there are certain things that limit them, whether it be budget, whether it be just the, uh, you know, in 2007, things f were very popular and aged or soured very quickly. And with what we do in the shadows, I think it's just, you know, he basically pitched a sitcom in movie form you know four yeah. roommates living together as vampires is a that's a fucking terrible sitcom that runs for a year back in 1990 but he's borrowing from vampire and werewolf lore like all of the correct things to allow for some really fun situational comedy and on top of that it's an odd couple show like, it really, really works as a sitcom. Just in the 90-minute mockumentary falls flat for me. They also, yeah. I, I, I will have to add, they add one major character to the show that also I think is one of the successes of it is they add in a, um, fuck, what do they call him? A spiritual vampire? Have you ever heard of this? You, you go into dark corners of the internet, Nick. Um, the... The vampires that feed off of uh, people's energies. 
I told you, I don't like vampires. I don't like them. They're lame. But, it, uh, I don't know. There is there is a real passionate community somewhere out there um, where they are. They believe they are vampires, but instead of drinking blood, they feed off of people's energies. And Taika Waititi interprets that into the TV show as he is the most boring, nerdy, just beige man in the world. And the guy is so fucking funny. And it's also a great juxtaposition that you don't truly get in the show, uh, in the movie, of <laughs> this guy's this guy's not like a blood-sucking vampire, but like he bores all the vampires and drains their energy by just like going on long-winded talks about like instruction manuals and shit like that. It's great. That's funny. Yeah. That's the thing. It's it, it's very sitcommy, and I just don't think it works in the mockumentary form. It works so much better as a fit sitcom because that's what it is. Yeah, with like shorter, shorter character arcs, and yeah, I mean, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, but anyway, I mean, this has a huge cult following. Uh, I believe that it surpasses the record that Boy had held with the New Zealand's own box office for a New Zealand film. Um, and what we do in the shadows, its success actually gets him a huge end that will come into play later. He gets tapped to write one of the first drafts of Moana. Wait, hold on. What was that? I didn't hear what you said. He gets tapped to write one of the first drafts of Moana. Oh, Moana. Moana. Yeah. Moana. I, I yeah. called Moana ever since I hung out with RJ that one day and he was. <laughs> wouldn't stop i call it moana like, from now on you like moana yeah yeah no i know um yeah well i mean that makes sense i think it, it, i imagine I, I imagine he wrote a pretty good fucking draft uh, and from what i understand like you know also with that movie they certainly did a uh, very more concerted effort to bring in um indigenous peoples into the team both performance wise and behind the camera and I think this was part of that but also the success of this kind of helped everything gel um, that draft ends up getting abandoned I don't think any of it's really in the movie even though Jermaine Clement does have a nice little role in there and the best song in the movie um, but he follows this up with Hunt for the Wilder People which I say what we do in the shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People this is like where if you're going to jump on the Taika Waititi band wagon it's that indie darling period and this is it um and the end of it so hunt for the wilder people is 2016 it is the story of a uh, juvenile delinquent who is basically like been trouble and escaping from different foster homes he goes to live with a family out in the new zealand bush or right on the edge of the new zealand bush on like a farm or whatever the foster mom dies and the foster dad is sam neil and he very clearly didn't want to have a kid he was doing it for the love of his wife and you know he's like look i i'm an old grumpy man i i didn't want to have kids i did it for my wife she passed away you know <laughs> a couple months after we got you i think it would be best if you go back into the foster child the foster care si system and instead they both run away into the bush for multiple months and kind of have this great on the run bonding movie but it happening almost like a survival jungle tale um 
Nick, you have seen this. Yeah, I will certainly, I'm, I'm the one who put it on the list. Yeah, I, I will certainly gush over it later. But, like, just, you know, give me your thoughts. I mean, overall, I liked it. I think I think it worked really well. I, you know, Sam Neill's one of those actors that I find to be, you know, I, I know he's been in some classics, but I, I want to say one of the most hit-or-miss actors of all time. Um, he's one of those dudes that like, you see in something and you, you flip a coin of whether or not he tried during that production. In this one, uh, yeah, he's, he's fucking great. His comedic timing is very on point. He hits that uh, that grumpy old man element really well. I think the kids, entertaining, likable. Their dynamic with each other is really fun. Uh, I don't think I like went as crazy over this movie as you did, but I very much enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, I absolutely love this movie. Um, Sam Neill is a good entry point into this because 20 years after Jurassic Park, Sam Neill is asked to do the same exact arc as I'm a guy who's really good at one thing and I don't want kids and here I have to do that one thing I'm really good at saddled with a kid. But in this case, instead of dinosaurs and a kid who's really nerdy about paleontology, he gets Ricky Baker, who is this chubby little delinquent who very much just wants to be a gangster and listen to rap music and stuff and they're in the New Zealand bush which you know it's not like the outback um honestly this was the first time that like the New Zealand bush was a concept that I was introduced with it's basically just like really really rough jungle forest terrain in New Zealand um you know this is where they got like uh, fucking Fangorn forest and all that shit from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings um and it's great because it's not necessarily just about these two learning to be a family, but really it's about them both grieving for the loss of this person that, you know, for Sam Neill's case was the person who kind of like pulled him into society and gave him a life and helped him kind of not just be a crazy woodsman. And in Ricky Baker's sense, it's this person who like, for the first time really didn't give up on me when I tried pushing their buttons and stuff and truly showed that there was love to give me. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of comedy that is mined from a survival movie. And a survival movie is a great, great archetype to build that emotional core around. Yeah, for sure. And it does. I mean, it, it's a movie that definitely... Um, hits a lot of different things, you know, hits a lot of different emotions. Like, yeah, you really want a movie to, to hit. Right. So I think I, you know, it's, it's funny, but it's touching and you know, it, um, it, it's a, it's a, a laugh, cry, whatever movie. I, I, yeah, I would go so far as to say like, it is one of those laugh cry movies where like, I, I cannot underplay that. I think, all of the good, funny aspects that Waititi has shown in his previous films, I think they just work so much better in this because he is... He's got the framework to hang them on where they're not distracting. They never take away from the major themes and the emotional core of the movie. They're just there to kind of keep the tone light and the pace moving and... I should clarify, like, it's them two surviving in the bush, but it's also kind of a chase movie with this person from, you know, it gets a little fantastical here, but, like, this person from Child Services is, like, 
trying to get after Ricky Baker and bring him back into child services and like put him in like an orphanage, but it's treated like a national search. And, you know, there are almost Blues Brothers-esque, what do I, what do you call it? Like, you know, when they bring in all the fucking cops at the end of Blues, Blues Brothers and all yeah. the over-the-top like chases. Over, that like overkill. El- that escalation is there with this character, which is really fucking funny. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's one of those movies that fucking made me cry at the end the first time I saw it. I've watched it a couple times since. Uh, and, you know, it's no Paddington, too. I'm not bawling if I catch just the last 15 minutes of this movie. But it's still, like, he now knows exactly how to pull the heartstrings that he doesn't quite get in Boy. Um, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good movie. I'd, I'd definitely say people, a lot of people should watch it if they haven't. Um, so, yeah, that movie is a huge indie darling. It breaks the record that the other films had had in New Zealand as the most popular and successful New Zealand film in New Zealand. Um, it, it does pretty decently over here. You know, some light indie awards runs, things like that. But then he goes on to just like, you know, it, it was at that time where if you made a nice indie movie, a studio just kind of gobbled you up and gave you a big franchise. And one year later, he comes out with, I think you could argue, top five most successful Marvel movies. Well, maybe, that's not my realm. Maybe top I have, three. I, I, can talk, I can talk a decent amount about this movie, but I definitely, like, when it, when it comes to... This is going to be a lot more... So I'll clarify. I, I watched it uh, for the first time ever yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the context that I needed from Kelly because she's turned into a little Marvel nerd herself. Um, I am not that yet. Uh, but I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, let me just kind of give you the setup. You intro, for sure. I'm not going to be as good. The story goes that he goes into his general meeting with Marvel. And they're looking for a director. He's like, look, there is a specific storyline in Marvel that I would like to do. And he comes in with Cashmere by Led Zeppelin and hits play on the recorder. And while that is going... or. Wait, sorry. No, that was the Avengers theme I just did. The uh, yeah, that uh, is uh, come from the land of the essence. No, thunderstruck. It's not thunderstruck. This why it's not cashmere. What is that? Oh, thunderstruck plays at the end. Yeah, but whatever. The Led Zeppelin. The doom. You should look that up right now and say it because if there's anything. We've ever said on this podcast that that could be considered offensive. It's not naming the right fucking Zeppelin song from. Uh, from thank you. It is is immigrant song. It's not Cashmere. That is totally my bad. That is uh, a long work day and a beer in. That's what happens. He comes yeah, in with you immigrant be, you should song. Be ashamed of yourself. I, I like. I kind of am for being a classic rock fan, but also like I just never had that phase in college where I got deep on Led Zeppelin, so I don't feel too bad. Yeah, it's, you know, it's that song. It's that song by that band, you know. But anyway, he comes in with this 
fully fledged vision of basically taking Thor, which the previous two movies were not incredibly successful. It was a character. You haven't said the title of this movie yet, by the way. Yeah, I know. I know. So he comes in, he's like, Thor is a movie that, you know, it hasn't quite hit the same way. Chris Hemsworth has proven like he's a very funny guy, but like, we're not quite doing it. Let me do Planet Hulk and Ragnarok. Let me mix these two storylines together and let me do this crazy 70s, 80s, neon colored space adventure and do something closer to James Gunn Guardians of the Galaxies, you know, bright colors, big music kind of stuff. And he's playing Led Zeppelin and the studio eats it up. So he gets signed on to direct Thor Ragnarok. I would argue, Nick, especially as you, who not a Marvel guy, I'm curious. I always think Thor Ragnarok is probably the easiest into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe Black Panther would be the other one, just because they're so... Like, Black Panther's a little bit more self-contained. Um, but I think those two are kind of up there for the easiest ins. What did you think specifically in relation to the whole of the MCU, where you have only seen From based pieces. on what I've seen of the MCU, Thor Ragnarok is like, if they made them, if they were all like this, I'd have watched the series by now. Like, th- this movie was great. It, it was it, the, the whole thing is, is that, you know, the thing that frustrates me to no end about the, the movies in the MCU is... You know, they're, they're, there's, they're, they're fun action movies, and that's what... The, like, they are what they should be, but they take themselves so ungodly fucking serious all the time. And this this movie is just like, no, we're going to have a good time. It's fine. Like, we'll have some cool action. We'll have some rather well-written comedy, you know? And then there's serious moments that need to be there when they need to be there, but, like, we don't need to fucking kill ourselves here. We're making a superhero movie. This and Guardians are the two best movies that I've seen in the MCU because they're movies that that take the fun premise of, of superhero movies and, like, actually have fun with them. At least in the MCU, you know. No, 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 I, I agree with you. I, I think also, you know, the, the comparison to Ga- Guardians is very easy. A, it's the space Marvel stuff. But also, they are the most visually interesting and... I think just because of the directors, the most visually free movies. They don't have that Marvel grayscale kind of shit going on. Um, well, it's all—it's more than just visuals, though, because it's also—it's likable leads, it's funny dialogue, uh, it's good soundtrack, uh, it's uh, a likable band of misfit side characters. Like the—the the, the whole thing is it, and both move both movies have both of those things, and it makes for much more entertaining watches for me than a lot of other MCU stuff. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Have you seen either of the other two Thor movies? No. Yeah. Okay. So this is a huge departure from those two. Like, no, I mean, this... I'm sure it is. That's the, you know, I checked with, I, I checked with you and I checked with Kelly and I checked with you long in the past I remember you had told me to watch Ragnarok years ago, and my system, my system is always like, 
no, I don't know where things are in the series. And you were like, yeah, I don't know. It could go either way. And I was like, well, I, mean, I got to watch at least the first two Thors, right? And you were like, oh, no, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're like, yeah, you might have to watch Age of Ultron. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, that's still annoying. I'm not going to do it. And then Kelly was like, you don't have to watch Age of Ultron. You just have to understand that Hulk's in space. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and that's all it took. <laughs> Yeah, like, honestly, that's about it. So, Thor Ragnarok, uh, we pick up with Thor. After Age of Ultron, he has had a uh, a vision that Ragnarok, which is basically like an apocalyptic event kind of doom-scrolling thing, is coming. Um, and he is trying to stop it. So, it picks up with this cold open, which is such a, like, right from the top, we're getting a slap in the face that this is not the Thor movies you're used to. This is going to be fucking fun. Um, with Thor pretty much in voiceover, directly addressing the audience. Uh, it, he totally just changes the tone from the first second. Um, yeah. And I, I, it, it's such a breath of fresh air. Like, if you're not a Marvel person, I would say absolutely go watch this. It is well, just like you said. He's modeling it after Guardians where he's taking the fun soundtrack something that was missing from Thor. He's taking the good side characters that Guardians has, something that like Thor always tried to do and was not successful in doing. And yeah, he just totally revitalizes an arm of the MCU that honestly, before this, everyone kind of thought was dying. If you're going into this movie, Chris Hemsworth is like a, you know, he, he's an Avenger. He's a big piece of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but like the Thor movies aren't doing well on their own. They don't quite understand and have a good grasp on the character. And thanks to this movie, I mean, I don't know where Endgame would be if Taika Waititi did not come and fix this. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that because I don't know what the hell the rest is going on. I mean, it, uh, it's a he, it's a gradual just, process. I gotta fin- I gotta finish watching Winter Soldier. I've been working on it for two years. Um, I, I am gonna spoil something for you, Nick. But like what I'm saying is, he allows Thor to be a comedic relief character within the Avengers yes. because we are so invested in Captain America, which is so fucking serious, and Iron Man. Where, I mean, before Age of Ultron, you've already got the Iron Man arc completed with his PTSD and his, you know tale of redemption and trying to fix things from his past it allows thor to just fucking be funny and chris hemsworth is a fucking funny actor um yeah it's great i also you know he brought back loki and loki had always kind of been a fan favorite character but i think the work that he does in this one with loki is so much better and now you know he's he's got his own tv show now He's got his own TV show now. Buddy, the buddy cop show with Loki and Owen Wilson. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that shit. Hopefully it's fun. Because they tried to do like... (laughs) I mean, this is going to be a digress. But with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they had kind of billed that as they were going to make it like a buddy cop movie. And they are very like... There's a lot of problems with that. Especially like with the whole COVID thing. They had to like re-edit a lot of the second half of that series but it's very apparent in the first couple episodes like they are directly trying to graft buddy cop staples into that show and it does not work whatsoever so i'm hopeful that because loki could be like a fully realized thing it's stronger um 
But anyway, Thor Ragnarok is really fun. Um, I know you probably don't care at all about this, Nick, but uh, so there's the Ragnarok, but then it also, it picks up with Mark Ruffalo and the Hulk in space. And that's the planet, planet Hulk stuff. And I've read that graphic novel and I really hated it. And I think he does a very, very good job of adapting it, of leaving the shit that like is tedious and really like fucking, I hate to say this, but like really fucking nerdy of the different world buildings and, you know, the oppressors and all that kind of stuff. And he just makes it like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we just need the quick hits for this. Let's keep the Thor Ragnarok stuff to frame it and let's make Planet Hulk a little side quest for Thor. And that's such yeah. a brilliant idea. Because well, Planet Hulk, that whole comic with all of that stuff on that world and the gladiatorial games and stuff is really cool, but I think in the book, it gets marred down by being like a whole revolutionary tale and a war and all kinds of shit like that. That like, It's just a great premise that he's like, he knows I'm just going to cherry pick the ideas from this and let Thor and Hulk kind of go on a buddy side quest here. For sure. And I think that that section also works because one, you've got the whole battle royale thing, which, you know, is always fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, also Jeff Goldblum as a villain is fucking hilarious. Um, oh, Jeff fucking Goldblum. Like, totally different in. character from the books. And he is so fucking fun. I, you were given the intro and talking about how, like, this doesn't take itself too seriously. You have Jeff Goldblum making jokes about Asgard. That's fucking yeah. funny. That's what Thor needed. Sure. And also... I'll throw out there uh, Taika Waititi playing that that soft-spoken rock character is hilarious because you've got oh. the whole you got the, the you know the, the characters made of rocks and always have gruff voices and then he's just Taika Waititi just being like oh hello <laughs> it's just like it's funny it's, it's it, you know it plays it plays against expectations and it works like it just Korg shows to how much he's grown as a rules. filmmaker you know, like, it's great it's a great movie Cor Korg is also, like, one of those uh, characters from the book that I was just like, ugh, I fucking hate this. Uh, no, he's so fucking funny. It's it's perfect. I'm glad that he gets to come back and do a little bit of stuff again. I honestly, I hope that Korg appears more and more. I So fucking good. Yeah, but Nick, uh, so I love Thor Ragnarok. Um, it's... I don't think I've ever officially done my Marvel rankings, but... I would say that when it comes to like going back and rewatching a Marvel movie, it is easily one of the most rewatchable for me. Based it's on the probably if you're talking pure, five. if you're talking pure MCU for me, uh, it's probably number one. This was what I want a uh, superhero movie to be, and so yeah, it gets uh, it gets a ton of credit. And he deserves a ton of credit for, you know, doing something like this in, in the midst of, um, you know, the, the, the MCU and sort of shaping the direction it ultimately went. So let me ask you this. What do you know about Endgame involving anything to do with Thor Ragnarok? Uh, I mean, I know that it has something to do with uh, Infinity Stones and there were Infinity Stones in that room. Uh, I don't know. I, I assume it's space shit. It, oh, okay. You are in for a pleasant surprise when you reach it. Like, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be another eight years. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's just... 
Uh, I imagine I just have to sit down and force myself to watch the rest of Winter Soldier. I don't know why I hate it. (laughs) That's because Bucky sucks. This is a conversation for a different day. I am... I, I, I guess I'm more forgiving of this, but, like, the number one complaint with all of the MCU, I think, is that it hangs way too much important plot and character motivation on the relationship with Bucky, the Winter Soldier, and... Sebastian Stand is not good. Listen, I don't have any opinion on... The, I, this is, like, to me, it's... I mean, yet again, we're going into MCU, and it's just like... you know, I bet we could do an entire side series where it's just me reacting to fucking Marvel movies after I watch them. Uh, Maybe we'll do that one day. Because I can't... Like, I, I, I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but I just know that that movie, for some reason, feels like such a... It, Captain America Winter Soldier to me is like a bad spy movie and I don't have to watch it on a list right now. So I always turn it on and get through 10 minutes and I'm just like, this is boring and I don't like it and I turn it off. And it's happened. It's free. It's on Disney Plus. I can go watch it right now, but I'm not gonna. I'd rather do. I'd rather do something else. We, uh, let's talk about it later. I mean, every I feel like every time we do an episode or every other episode, we're teasing our big Marvel talk. But uh, well, I, I mean, will no, say but this. this isn't. You're getting the big Marvel talk right now. Thor Ragnarok fucking rules. All right, like that's <laughs> that's yeah. the big Marvel talk. What else needs to be said? I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched this shit. <laughs> I'm the color so, commentator that hasn't watched any of the the big mainstream series that people <laughs> like. What did you hire me for? So, dear listener, you have heard it from Nick himself. If you don't like Marvel movies, you'll like Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's get to, yeah, let's, so, let's, let's get to this next one. Now he has had his giant commercial blockbuster success. It, it was critically loved as well. But, like, he's finally jumped to the big leagues. And so what does he do? He decides... I'm going to play Hitler. I'm going to make a Nazi movie. And in 2019, he does Jojo Rabbit, uh, a movie that he wins the Oscar for. Best, uh, Best adapted screenplay, I believe. After, you know, this is, it was the 2007 Oscars, I think, or maybe 2006 Oscars. So anyway, a little over a decade later, after feigning being asleep while he was nominated for his Oscar short, here he is winning an Oscar. Delightful. Um, Jojo Rabbit, if you haven't seen it, it's based off of a book. He takes a lot of liberties with it. But basically, you've got a young boy in the Nazi youth. Was there a specific name for that, Nick? Hitler Youth. Hitler Youth, sorry. Anyway, in the Hitler Youth, who is kind of like a a shy weakling kid who's trying his best in the Hitler Youth. Meanwhile, his mother is actually a resistance fighter who is hiding um, a teenage Jewish girl in their home. And it's the juxtaposition of not only him finding the girl and finding that relationship, but then Taika Waititi plays Hitler, jojo's imaginary friend and so you've got just hitler antics off to the side with taika waititi 
and him basically trying to like bolster a certain sense of maturity and adulthood for young Jojo. Meanwhile, he's got the young girl and his mother in a fabulous performance by Scarlett Johansson, kind of showing him another route to adulthood through compassion and embracing the things about him that maybe the Hitler character finds weak. And it all, I think, ties together, if melancholically, rather beautifully. Uh, am I remembering this wrong, Nick, that this was your number one movie that year? It's incorrect. Uh, oh, I was wrong. Yeah, no, no, don't get me wrong. Like, I, so, all right. Jojo Rabbit is an absolutely fantastic movie. Um, it's a movie that it, I've rewatched once since, and it has gotten better with rewatch as well. Um, at the same time, I also think that that was just an incredibly strong year of film. Um, and so it ended up being the type of thing where I think I, I had Jojo Rabbit in my top three Best Picture nominees um, that year alongside... Uh, 1917 and Marriage Story, two other movies that I think are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I say in a normal year, Jojo Rabbit would have been my bar none pick. I just really liked a lot of the Best Picture nominees uh, in 2019. So I'd like to dig into Jojo Rabbit just a little bit because especially now that we've gone through Boy... Hunt for the Wilder People. There are aspects of it in Thor Ragnarok um, and certainly uh, something else he was doing around this time or that he was, uh, I can't say developing, but like working on around this time, whatever. Um, the The relationship with the father, particularly in this case, the lack of a father and search for a father figure is something that I think he accomplishes incredibly well in this movie. Because you've got the over-the-top cartoonish Taika Waititi's Hitler on one side as his imaginary friend, but then you've also got his mother who's like really trying to be a father figure. Yes. And there's something about the juxtaposition with his imaginary friend Hitler that makes that struggle hit home much harder and also is... Um, just very cleverly portrayed. No, I mean I would agree completely, and I think well that's part of the the beauty of Scarlett Johansson's performance is when she's doing some of the um, you know father related stuff as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean I think that that that's absolutely I would say the strongest portrayal within his filmography. And it's always, you know, this is always kind of the thing when it comes to covering directors like this that I think are, I believe what T.D. is, is at the very early stages of his career, I think there's a lot more what T.D. to come, you know? This yeah. isn't us just talking about a dude who did a bunch of shit that no one knows about and then one hit. Uh, this is a dude who's pretty active and only getting bigger. And, you know, I I really want for him to, to be a, a star filmmaker, you know, one of those household names of filmmaking that I think he's on the cusp of being right now. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, Thor Ragnarok showed that from the blockbuster perspective, he has it. But I think Jojo Rabbit also was kind of the culmination of 
a lot of what he was doing before and trying to do a nice personal drama with comedic elements, this is the culmination of all of that, that it all finally gels and hits. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I do want to share like one more thing, which is incredibly spoilery. So I would say uh, jump ahead like two minutes because I just want to touch on it briefly. This movie does have, I remember very clearly at the time, my number one favorite moment in film from that year. Um, and it is the... I know what you're spoilers, talking about. The dramatic... I, I, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it, it, it's one of... Again, it's just... It's a moment that has haunted me. The reveal of... Scarlett Johansson is in The Resistance, as I said. And is hiding a Jew. They don't discover the young Jewish girl. But they do discover she is with The Resistance. And it is revealed where Taika Waititi has in a very Spielbergian way, planted you with the seed of what her shoes look like. And as he is one day just walking along the banks of a river in this German town, he comes upon, at eye level, the dangling shoes. And we never see anything else of Scarlett Johansson, but from that moment, we know that she has been caught and hung as a traitor. Which and, I think that you're also doing a little bit of a disservice in the explanation here as well, because part of the reason the moment is so effective is that the hanging bodies was played as like a dark joke more than once already. Exactly. So it's not just the the Spielbergian revelation of, of her shoe type where the audience knows that going in. It's there's a dark joke of a body hanging as he walks around and that happens in the movie already and then it happens again and it's his mom that is why the moment is so effective it's yeah, it, it plays on your expectations from both a comedic standpoint as well as giving you the, the giving you the seeds in order for it to to hit home emotionally as well yeah and and honestly for me there was like that a, a beautifully executed film moment. There was the second where I thought he was setting us up for a callback joke. And then I had to take a second to realize what the shoes were. And then the moment hit me. It was, I got everything beat by beat in the exact order he wanted. I was exactly where he wanted me to be. I, 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 that moment has not left me. And I don't think will for a very long time. Yeah. Well, no, and it's, and it's also, I can't stress this enough, it's a phenomenal script. Just the mo the movie itself is, you know, not only is it, uh, it, I would say when you're talking about, um, you know, Hunt for the Wilder People being a, being a movie that, you know, that hits every emotion, and uh, I would put this movie in that exact same category, and I would say I found it to be, uh, per, on a personal level, more effective, um, where... You know, it's it's funny. There's moments where you're smiling. Uh, it's the most pleasant Nazi movie ever made. And also, you add in the fact that, like, you know, doing a doing a Nazi movie, especially in you know 2019 modern culture, is a bold fucking move. And well, he yeah, when, did it, when it, and he he nailed it. When it was announced, everyone was like, "You just had one of the biggest Marvel success stories, and you're going to play Hitler." What are you thinking? I mean, this was a Jerry Lewis and the Clown thing. Like, they were setting us up for that. And he fucking... I mean, he nailed it so hard he got an Oscar. 
Well, until people watched it, right? I mean, people said that, right? But the, mm-hmm. I mean, once people started watching this movie, that this wasn't a, a movie that took time for people to be sold on. Like, this was a movie that, that pretty much anybody who watched it liked it. I think so. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's hard to dislike it, even if... Uh, so there are certain elements in this film that certainly held it back from being my top movie of that year. Um but yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. I, I, I don't know what else to say. There are a couple things right. with the side characters where I think he misses um, or maybe just doesn't give a lot of screen time. And I do think part of that is on Rebel Wilson. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, th- I thought it was. I thought, I thought she did her part fine. I'm not a huge fan of hers, and I thought she was fine in this. I, I, I don't know. Oddly enough, Alfie Allen, I think, is one of the funnier parts of this movie. Just like... It, so Sam Rockwell is in this. We haven't really talked about him at all, even though he's very good in it and a very funny part. But also, yeah. I love the fact that Alfie Allen is in the background of all of Sam Rockwell's scenes, just sniping jokes from him. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I also just... I mean, it's it's a oddly hopeful movie as well. And I think that that's really what... I think gives the movie longevity. Yeah, I, I'm very curious in about like five years when people finally come back to revisiting this and viewing it in the lens of the you know, Trump era where the world kind of comes out on this. Um, but honestly, I think we're too close for it right now. I think this movie is going to age. I think this movie is going to age extraordinarily well. That's what I'm saying, yeah. But I think even now it's still great. And anyone yeah. can watch it. So that is actually the last released film that Taika Waititi was done. I just kind of wanted to give a little recap also. So uh, the other big thing while all of this is going on is he is in The Mandalorian, which we talked about when we did the John Favreau miniseries, but he plays one of the robot characters. I think it's IG-11, but also directed the season one finale, which is... Kind of like he was given the take this home for us, cement it as what we want this to be a long running beloved series, and he knocks it out of the park. I, I firmly put a lot of like the Mandalorian staying power on the fact that he just oh, it knocks that finale out of the park. It got us for the fucking year and a half, two years we had to wait for the next one. Um, I so yeah, like that's I'm a big to, thing. I'm going to have to wade through Mandalorian directors of random episodes to figure out who we're picking next on this podcast, you know? It's just, let's let's hit a, them all, man. There's a couple really interesting directors. Not people who have done a lot necessarily, but like some interesting Hollywood figures, for sure. Um, I feel like they let like one of the guys who was behind the Clone Wars do an episode or two. Uh, Watiti's done an episode or two. Uh, oddly enough... Um, Ron Howard's daughter, I think, has done like two episodes. Um, there, there are a couple other people. Like, it, yeah, the director roster for that show is stacked. I stand by that. I think you, who's not a Star <laughs> Wars fan, if there's any piece of Star Wars you're going to like, it's going to be The Mandalorian. Listen, now that I went to Disney World and did the Star Wars rides, Kelly and I are going to watch the Star Wars movies, maybe. And by maybe, I mean, you know, maybe after I finish Winter Soldier. <laughs> I, I would say Mandalorian should be a priority ahead of the most recent trilogy. Oh, we'll see what fucking happens. I'm not. 
What 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 is uh, what's 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 Tini coming out with next? So that's the next thing. Uh, so he, he's doing Thor four, which is Thor Love and Thunder, which. You know, as far as the specific goes, we know that he convinced Natalie Portman to rejoin the franchise and is supposedly doing the Jane Foster's Thor arc, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, Again, like a huge star who had pretty much disavowed the MCU, he convinced her to come back in and is doing a whole female-centric story. Who knows where it goes with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor and all the other space shit that is set up in the MCU, but that's coming out, I believe, next year, 2022. Okay. And then the other movie that I believe is in post-production right now is a movie called Next Goal Wins or something like that. He's basically he's doing a sports movie about uh, an underdog team. I want to say it's a New Zealand team. Uh, sure. Trying to win the FIFA Cup, based on true cool. story, uh, starring like uh, he got some like big names that I think he's gonna do some good like Michael Fassbender I believe is the lead and like Michael Fassbender needs someone like him to kind of inject his career with a little goodwill at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then the other stuff is he is now at that stage with Thor Ragnarok and Jojo Rabbit. He has just been tapped to do a bunch of shit, you know. He's got a couple of movies he's circling. Apparently, there are two different Charlie and the Chocolate Factory adjacent properties. Um, he's now been flirted to be attached to the live-action Akira movie that it seems like everyone gets a shot at being attached to and then falls apart. They're talking about doing a sequel to What We Do in the Shadows, but specifically centered around the, vamp- uh, the werewolf characters. Um, and then he is still, like, executive producing and I think has some firm creative hand in the TV show, which is, uh, I think about to release its fourth season. And again, can't talk highly enough about that. Absolutely love it. Cool. I'm looking forward to the, the, the raw doll cinematic universe, you know, and what, Uh, did you hear the other thing? The, the director of Paddington and Paddington two is not doing Paddington three because he's doing the, Wonka prequel movie. No. It's the most disappointing thing I've ever heard. Well, if you, if you trust him, then trust him. But you know what? I I I think Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is one of those stories we can be done with. Raw Raw Dolls. I don't know. He's a really good writer. I still I think Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is unbeatable. I agree. Uh, if you're going to go and do it, you got to do some of the other stories that are involved with it. The stories themselves, there's a sequel. And granted, I read that sequel book, didn't care for it. Thought it was weird. Uh, but, like, you know, do that. You know what I mean? Like, do it so you can do more shit. Add to it. Build from it. You don't just keep doing the same one. We already, no, got there's... The, we already have the original that's good and the second one that sucks. We don't need more of it, that one again. But there's other stuff to be had there. They're also they're doing uh, they're doing a film adaptation of the the Matilda musical. Well, that's fine because that's something different. My big Raw problem Dahl is like Cinematic Universe, man. It's all connected. Oh, God, I hate it. I 
hate it so it's much. It's all there, right? And then they'll, they'll do, they'll redo the BFG. It'll be Spielberg again. It'll be the director just redoing the same movie. Uh, so, what else is there? There's a movie I, about I do, people that are birds or something. I don't know. I don't know that much about it. So best, uh, worst, and uh, hidden gem, Nick. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's start with the best. Well, we and, always do. We've got an order. We, <laughs> we're not going to just I, change the order. <laughs> I am personally going to say his best is Thor Ragnarok only because like I'm giving it that edge of the best extra textually in how well it fixed the MCU's problem of what do we do with Thor and the the lasting impact that it has had on the MCU because of how successful it was. No, I mean that makes sense. Best, I'm going Jojo Rabbit. I think it's the, like, I think he's a filmmaker that's consistently gotten better. In fact, I would say uh, every movie I've seen from him has consistently been an improvement on the last one. And so, yeah, I'll go with the most recent. Um, and uh, you know, it's I can't stress enough. It's a it's a wonderful story uh, that shows you know uh, a, a really positive mes- message, and uh, you know the it shows. You know, a positive direction that that hatred can go in, and I think that that's a really good message for the world these days and in the future. Nice. Um, worst is kind of easy for me. Um, I, I do have to go with Boy, only because I kind of view it as a director who is dealing with some big things, but he's still kind of working it out. It's effective, but it's not 100% fully formed yet. Yeah, I'm going to say Eagle versus Shark cuz it's it's like watching it's like watching a baby's brain come up with a movie. <laughs> and you know the and baby yeah. might turn into a smart adult, but it's still a baby. <laughs> uh, so I guess uh, no surprises, Hidden Gem is Hunt for the Wilder People. That movie hardcore 5 for me. Absolutely love it. Have recommended it to multiple people who have loved it. Uh, I think it's heartwarming, touching, funny. I feel like you can watch it kind of anytime in any headspace, and it kind of gives you everything you want. It's, dare I say, Spielbergian, the most Spielbergian out of his career. I'll say for me, and you know, like Hunt for the Wilder People is the pick, but if I was gonna go a little bit outside the box, I would, I would say Thor Ragnarok, in the sense that like. I would have never... Like, if you're not a fucking superhero fan, this is a hidden gem. That's Does a that very make good sense? Point. Yeah. Like, it's... It, like, it's not a hidden gem because it's, like, mainstream shit. But, like, at the same time, no. This is... This is not, like... And I had heard from a few people, not just you, Zach, that, like, this is one of the funniest superhero movies. And my reaction to that as a non-superhero fan was, that sounds like some shit somebody would tell me to say... Uh, like that would say some that some shit that someone would say to me if they were trying to get me to watch a fucking superhero movie, uh, and you watch it and you know no, you're absolutely right. Like it is, it's a it's a fun movie. It's funny, um, and it's got really good action. And like yeah, for for me, it's it's a it, it was a hidden gem in the sense that I went into this just going all right. Everyone bothers me to watch this shit. And I'd kind of like something to talk about for this podcast besides Eagle versus Shark. So I watched it. And uh, I'm glad I did. Uh, 
almost is my favorite. Honestly, I'm really glad you did. Uh, yeah, it's a good movie. Join us next time. I don't know. I gotta go. I gotta. I gotta go eat dinner. Yeah. Next week. Next month. Next year. We'll talk about. Uh, and uh, yeah. My name is Zach Antonio. You can find I'm me Nick, on I'm, Twitter uh, and Letterboxd. I'm Nick Doriso, and you can find me on Letterboxd. I think I'm not positive. I'm on there, right? You are definitely on Letterboxd. Okay, cool. I I forget. I don't remember. I might have a Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. Uh, I don't I have an Instagram either. I think you have a Twitter. Either. I have a Twitter? I think you have a Twitter. It's just I need to get rid of that Twitter. I don't want that Twitter. <laughs> Can you show me how to delete Twitter? I, uh, no, you sign a, a lifetime oath with Twitter. That's like part of the deal. You can find me on OnlyFans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would your OnlyFans be? It's it's just my left butt cheek. It's all it is. Just butt cheek pictures, but just the left one. I, I'm self-conscious about the right. I, w- I was thinking it was going to be something more like, you know, it's an OnlyFans where like, I just kind of like sit in a New York apartment in a tank top and eat Cheetos. I just... That's it. I just read stories to people. <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> that would be... Just, just you like, okay, I sit down. All right, we're going to start. I take my shirt off and I open up rolled doll books. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, letterbox. That's where you'd actually follow me. Don't follow me anywhere else. Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. Give us some love. You know, let us know why we should keep doing this shit. Uh, or don't, and we'll ignore you. Whatever. Yeah, I'm not going to beg for your love, because I've never, I've never read anything anyone's ever written. So. All right. On the, uh, about the podcast, not just like in life. Like, I've read, I've read things. Uh, I know how to read. Yeah, you're OnlyFans. You've read Roald Dahl. Right, exactly. That's what I do on OnlyFans. Um, So good, good, good. All right, I'm going to turn off the recording. All right, bye, everyone.